this time in history is better than any other time in history to, to want to be an entrepreneur. You can, you can have, you can learn about any industry you want to learn about. You, I mean, even if you, you talk about schooling, you know, people say, oh, I don't have the right schooling. I mean, you don't need schooling. You could go online and get download courses from MIT for free. You could do the same thing with other, other universities. And, and other than that, you could just research and study any business you really would want to study. everybody, this is Devin Miller. Uh, welcome to another uh, episode of The Inventive Journey. Um, I'm your host, uh, patent and trademark attorney at Miller IP Law that loves to help startups and small businesses as well as, well as being a serial entrepreneur. Um, today we have on a, a, another great guest, uh, David Borish. Um, I will rather, he'll do a much better job of introducing himself than I ever could, so I'll let him introduce himself, but he should be a great guest, and we're excited to have you on. Hi, or welcome to the, the uh, podcast, David. Yes, thank you, Devin. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Oh, our pleasure. So tell everybody a little bit about your journey, about your story, of, of what you're up to, where you're at, and what's going on. Sure, sure. So I, I guess I'll start, you know, uh, as early as I can remember being an entrepreneur, uh, you know, I, I, if you hear stories of, you know, kids selling uh, baseball cards in, high, in school, elementary school and that, that was, I was definitely that kid. Um, so did then, you really sell baseball cards during school then? I actually did. Not only did I sell the baseball cards, but I, at 12 years old, my grandmother tells this story all the time. At 12 years old, she used to drive me to baseball card conventions. Really? And, and we'd load up her car, and this was in Queens, uh, New York. Load up her car, she'd drop me off at 8 o'clock in the morning, pick me up at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and I'd have a stack of money uh, from the cards that I sold from the day. And she just was, <laughs> she, she's always talked about it for years, of like, you know, this 12-year-old kid was making more money than, uh, than you know, the parents were <laughs> at the time. Hey, that, that's not a bad one. Now, now you just have to, I always... I always joke whenever my kids go out to like Halloween or get some like Easter that then and they have lots of candy. I always tell them they have to pay dad tax, which is give me a piece of candy. So now you yeah, just, yeah. your parents should have applied the same concept of now they're taxing you in order to be part of the household. But like uh, they were apparently a much kinder kinder parents than I have. So that's funny. There you go. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I read a book. It was I can't remember. It was Mark Cuban or it was one of them that did a lot of the same thing, and they would. They would go to the card trading. They wouldn't. Even, they would just go with like a, a tiny bit of money. They would buy the cards and sell them at the same show, and then they wouldn't. They wouldn't even have to come with the cards. They just yeah. That, that was a, that was another that was another hustle. Yeah, I, I had a bunch of those uh, same same hustles back then. Yeah, you you'd go to the to the, the the guy who had the exclusive cards, and if it wasn't you, it was someone else who had the new packs. You buy them out early in the show. Everybody's looking for them, and then you're able to resell them. Uh, throughout the show so yeah yeah I, I did that as well same thing <laughs> all right well you're you're I don't remember which one I know I read in a book I don't remember which famous person so you guys have you're you stand in good company so that's awesome so yeah, so you you started and I didn't mean to interrupt so go ahead and uh, keep telling your story I just, no no uh, that's fine that's fine I I, I love I always love talking about those times because uh it, it shows you know the the early starts of of uh you know being an entrepreneur and everybody has those similar types of stories hmm. uh in, in especially you know people that have been entrepreneurs their whole life so I, I won't bore you with every uh, you know 
business up until you know my, my uh, early 20s where I was uh, when eBay was first uh, becoming you know mainstream uh, I used to go and buy uh, like collectibles and things from garage sales and resell them and then I got into buying wholesale and then on the west coast they started uh, opening up these stores called eBay drop-off stores and there wasn't really any in New York and I was uh, living in upstate New York with my then girlfriend now wife at the time she was attending college and opened up a store her store it did extremely well right early on it was just the right time right place and uh, we ended up doing a number of stores and then franchising that and so gave me the first like retail real business experience in my early 20s um, from there we then for a number of years helped other businesses franchise so we used to partner with lawyers and other people in the ecosystem and, and find concepts and help fran help them franchise and then in 2008 we had the uh, downturn you know nobody was lending money uh, nobody was making money and nobody was lending money or moving money around and mm. so I came up with a concept of aggregating multiple securities loans, meaning having multiple customers. And these were actually just started out being, uh, you know, uh, my own clients that needed help. And we pitched uh, a number of banks, including Wachovia, which is you know, now Wells Fargo, um, under Wells Fargo. But we told them, listen, we know you give higher net worth individuals better long-term rates, what if we would aggregate, you know, let's say five $1 million loans, would you give us a $5 million, you know, high net worth loan? And of course, at the time, they're like, well, bring five customers over? Sure. And uh, we quickly, you know, took that model around to every single brokerage and bank that would listen and almost all of them signed on. And what, what ended up happening was we figured out that the model we created was, was more along the lines of what mortgage brokers do, but for the loan industry, for the security loan industry, where you go to a mortgage broker and they have a number of different loans and they sort of figure out the best loan for the customer. We pioneered that in the securities lending industry. And so we uh, eventually became the first, what we call the securities-based loan origination company, built the company up, we had loan brokers around the country, and then we were acquired by Rock Rockwood Capital Group a couple of years later. So that was sort of my first you know, larger company venture exit. Um, I would say. Oh, go ahead. Did you have a question? I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't hear. Oh, I was going to. So that's interesting. So, in the because I can almost see the banks going one of two ways. One they could say is, you know, I'd rather have an, a higher net worth individual that has five million dollars because he's more likely to pay on it. Or you could do the opposite of saying, hey, $1 million is still a high net worth individual. I'd rather spread it over five people because more likely most of them are going to pay or they're not going to default. So are the which way did the banks view? Did they say, hey, we'd rather have the really rich people that will be able to secure it or we'd rather diversify? Well, you got to think about at the time, you know, you, nobody was moving money around. So if you went to call up, let's say you were in JP Morgan and you went to call up Wells Fargo. Uh, Wells Fargo would say, are you a customer? And they'd say, no, well, move your money over and then we'll tell you about our loan product. And mm -hmm. so we sort of had an insight to that. We knew all the loan products. We knew what we can get, what stocks they liked, what they didn't like. And so we used that like a, 
proprietary model to our advantage. But from the bank's perspective, they were just happy to get a new client. They didn't really, you know, it wasn't, they didn't really care or think about uh, the loan. I mean, obviously, these were asset-based loans, so it's not like it was a high-risk loan to the bank. Okay. So to them, it was like, well, if they don't pay, we just, you know, take their securities. And, <laughs> and, <laughs> and it was uh, security either way. Yeah, it was security. It was secured. So, um, yeah, so it, uh, from, from that venture, you know, I, I was always, uh, you know, into tech and had a couple of side ventures in tech, nothing I really ever took off, you know, in between that time. But from there, I, I started um, looking at uh, a number of, you know, different uh, tech investments and ventures that I wanted to start. And we ended up um, starting the first, uh, if you think of like when you go to create a business plan, there's like a business plan pro and they teach you, they take you step by step. Mm -hmm. We created that software called Business Plan Wiz, BP Wiz, for the publishing industry. And it was funny how the idea happened. I was at a conference learning about books and all they kept saying was your business plan, your book proposal is your business plan. And I went up to the guy at the end and said, do you have an idea of a software I can use to write the book proposal when I'm ready? Like, no, but that's a great idea. And of course I couldn't go to sleep that night and I was on the computer. It was like, this has to exist. And it didn't, and we ended up creating it. So, um, so that was a, a venture that was around for a while. We ended up exiting, not a huge exit, but uh, they carried the, the uh, site on for quite a bit. Uh, actually, just recently, uh, uh, I think, shut it down. But, um, but they had it for quite some time. Uh, so from there, I uh, was involved in a couple of other ventures on the tech side, one in crowdfunding. And then I was on the train in, in New York. This was, uh, you know, around 2000. And, uh, 12 and, and just right around the time when Beats headphones uh, were sort of gaining popularity hmm. and people were wearing these $300 red headphones and if you're anyone that knows about sound you know you know for the same quality you can buy a $120 pair of Sony's and so that was just it just boggled my mind and I, I re realized it mainly because they had the branding they had the celebrities and right it's not it's not only that it's the the quality but it's hey i've got the cool headphones type of a thing yeah exactly it was all, it was a branding play but my idea was well, let's do that for mobile accessories and we're talking iphone 4 at the time hmm. uh so it was you know pretty early on and we had some pretty cool a couple of cool products and but the idea was we didn't want to just pay a celebrity to endorse it we wanted to partner and we wanted to co-found or like of brands or uh, mm. actual companies and so we went down the line we ended up getting in front of uh, uh, Nick Cannon and Snoop Dogg and you know we the closest deal we had was with Nick Cannon prior to what we launched and we just didn't give up and eventually we we, we uh, signed a deal with Jonathan Chevin who's now best known as the food god he's uh, like the Kardashians and Kanye West he's tied in with um with that show and with them. Okay. And so you have to stop there because you dropped enough big names. So how did you, you got the idea, okay, we're going to get into the mobile, you know, mobile tech or the mobile accessories. We're just going to go find people that will partner with us. You know, whether it's a Nick Cannon or whoever it might be, big enough names, you know, or go to FUBU or go to whoever, how do you start to even approach them? So I'd say most people at least 
maybe you don't, you know, you grew up and knew all these people, but for me, I would have no idea even how to go out and start to reach out to them or find them. So how did you start to make those connections? You know, I, I, I wish I had a secret sauce, but the, the, the reality was I was pitching the idea to investors and I ended up getting an investor who later became my partner and good, good friend to this day. And without me expressing my, you know, full idea, he repeated to me, I think you're on to something. We should get celebrities involved. And, and, and so, I, again, I think it's, 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 it's about having the passion and, and drive of wanting to do something mm -hmm. and then just being able to, you know, get in front of enough people to, to help you execute that idea. So I, um, you know, a, a, he ended up having the relationships, one of the companies he was partners in, worked with celebrities. They ended up knowing uh, a number of celebrities and people in the agency business. So that's how we got in front of a lot of them. And then Damon John was one of the first celebrities we pitched. And, uh, you know, Damon's also from Queens, as, as I am uh, born and raised. So we had a little bit of connection there. But we pitched him. He said, well, you know, uh, I, I like the idea, but uh, I'm going to pass for now, you know, let's, you know, basically come back and let me know how it goes. Mm. But what happened was in the meantime, we did get that brand started with, uh, Jonathan Chevin. Jonathan was being managed by one of Damon's companies and they saw that we scaled this brand really quickly. We got it on major uh, we got a lot of press on it, what we were doing, and the Kardashians took pictures and everything. It was just, we, we, we did a lot in a little bit of time, and then Damon was impressed by that and came back to us and said, look, you, you proved out what you're hmm. capable of. So I got some ideas on, on a brand I want to create, and let's, let's move it forward. So we ended up partnering with Damon John from Shark Tank, uh, and that, you know, took us on, you know, a four-year journey of, you know, doing some really cool stuff. We ended up getting involved in not only with mobile accessories, but like virtual reality was really new at the time. We mm. had the first virtual reality headset ever sold on television on Home Shopping Network. Damon went on air. And mm. um, what's funny about that story is we had to convince, first of all, we had to explain to them what it was, Home Shopping Network, <laughs> because they had never seen or heard of a, a, a virtual reality headset. And it was only one where you put the phone in and you could look around, but it was still very new at the time. It was the first time anybody had seen it. And, um, and they eventually, you know, got on board with us and put it on air. We sold that out really quickly. And, um, you know, I, I, I always, I don't like to only say highlights. So I got to be honest about that story. What happened was uh, we sold out in 15 minutes and our customer service experience following that, the sale of those 15,000 units was a nightmare. And the reason is those 15,000 units were sold mainly to older people who didn't realize you needed a smartphone. <laughs> and our, most of our calls came in as like, can I use a flip phone? <laughs> and, well, I don't have a smartphone. I got to return it. So, you know, we, we were, home shopping, it was, a, it was a success for them in terms of selling, but we, they begged us to come back on. We went on with other products, but not with that one. So huh, we, uh, we have the claim to fame of the first virtual reality headset ever sold on television, but uh, probably the most returns ever uh, on a home <laughs> shopping network as well. So it's kind of, you got both of them. You got the best and the worst. So 
That's exactly, funny. Yeah. I, I wouldn't have even thought of that, but that's a good point. If you know, you, you take it a little bit for granted, but if, especially if you're talking to any bit of an older audience or ones that still that time are using flip phones or anything, it's going to be, well, no, you have, this doesn't come. And they're like, that, that is funny. Or, you know, what? another thing was if they thought it came with the phone, if they thought a phone came with it, I'm like, for 50 bucks, you really think you're going to send a smartphone? <laughs> like, I'll, I'll just go buy that to get a new phone. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, I, I, um, so diving into that, and I, I want to get into yeah. a little bit more of what you're doing now, because um, it's you know relevant with uh, COVID nineteen and some of the diagnosing uh, diagnosis and that. But jumping into that, how did you? So you have you know you go on QVC, you go on Home Shopping Network, you go on you know all make all these sales, and you sell to you know what would have been older audiences or at least audiences that didn't understand it came with the phone or they needed it, and then you have all of a sudden a huge customer service problem. How did you deal with that problem or how did you correct it or did you correct it or what was it, you know, cause that would be, if I was in all of a sudden I'm saying, yeah, we got all these sales. It's going to be great. And then the next day I turn around and everybody wants to return it or get mad at me. It's kind of a the highest of the high and then right down to the lowest of the low. So how was that? Well, you know, we, since we were the first, there was no market. So we were creating a market. So we had a really high margin on the product. So even with the sales, we were still profitable. So it wasn't really, with the returns, I mean, it wasn't really that bad in terms of, of that. We did have a high number of returns, but we were the margins were really high, so we were, we were profitable at the end. But yeah, I mean, it, it, every business I've been involved in throughout my career, you know, anyone that'll tell you they start something and it goes exactly as planned from the beginning, they're just lying. I mean, it's just <laughs> no, that's not real. That's not the way it works. It's not reality of any business you know you're always going to hit the wall and have to figure out something new a new way to do something a new way to sell something a new way to uh, you know pivot the entire business the entire mm -hmm. model i mean you know to this day one of so i'll i'll bring it into the next business venture from the the moguls and the brands of mobile accessories we decided after the market became saturated and and you know, all mobile accessories ended up becoming commodities, meaning mm. you, and, and you'll appreciate this being from the patent and trademark office, iPhone would come out in September. You wouldn't know the specs until they announced it in September. To this day, they still do it this way. And then mm. it would ship in October. So you had one month. So there was no way to create any real proprietary IP around yeah. any of the phones. And this happens every year because iPhone and Android, everybody comes out with a new phone every year. So even, yeah, really so even if you could to, get IP on it, it's like you don't even. Have, by the time you'd be able to even get it, the patent through the patent office, they're already onto the next product, and so you're never going to have a long enough. Oh cycle. yeah, I, I I could tell you we had people pitch us products all the time, like patents, but they would pitch us an iPhone phone patent when iPhone six was out. So it was like, <laughs> you know, it it, it uh yeah. It yeah, was, some markets it doesn't line up. Does not make sense to go for patents. Some of them, and I'll be an evangelist, and I'm biased makes great sense but you're right absolutely right and i almost look at that as kind of like the snuggie like snuggie was an awesome one it took out and they made a lot of money off of it and yet it was kind of a flash in the pan you went out for a couple of years everybody bought them and then snuggie went away so were the patents really valuable in that no not really Be brand was brand was a great one but if you're yeah. going for patents it wouldn't have, would not have made sense and i'm sure that's a lot the same with the iphone or the phone accessory market yeah, exactly. So we had a tough decision. We were either going to raise a lot of money to compete with the public companies who were dominating the space, 
with the commoditized business, or we were gonna, you know, just, just shut the brand. So we had a great run. We did a lot of amazing things and decided mm -hmm. to move on. So from the experience with VR, uh, was I was really getting into virtual reality and and, and looking at it as like you know a, a futuristic technology. Anytime I showed someone just a VR headset, they were blown away. And so I was looking around what could be created around it. And the the, the, the next venture, the next idea was how do you control the video in a VR headset? Mm. And so we set out to do that. And what ended up happening was we figured out a technology, not only for VR, but for mobile phones as well and any touchscreen devices. And so mm. for the last four years, uh, Neo360 is uh, a company that I've been building. And we, uh, and just to go back to my point of hitting a wall and, and trying new things, we initially thought this, touchscreen control technology, which allows you to control video just by swiping and touching the screen. Hmm. We were going to integrate with apps and all the apps were going to love us. And we were on development plans for HBO, Showtime, all these big networks that never came to fruition for one reason or another. And we ended up having to pivot 18 months later to go to broadcast where we finally hit a, a, a you know, a stride where we let, you know, able to uh, license to NFL and a couple of other leagues and teams uh, along the way, but, um, you know, you just never know now with 5g coming out, the mobile, uh, product actually is more viable because you could do longer live video and longer form video with using our technology. So if we would have called it quits after the first run, we wouldn't have saw the second one. And then the second model we're building is kind of a slow model because it's broadcast and it's not like there's millions of broadcasters you know there's thousands so it's, it's a slow mm -hmm. business but we uh we ha hung on there and now 5g comes along and now we we could go back and have a much bigger play so you know one of the things that i did uh uh well there we did well was we didn't raise too much money too early mm -hmm. and the reason is if we did we would have had to be forced to scale to grow and imagine growing and scaling, and then this what just happened with COVID-19 mm. and the sports industry, right? I mean, <laughs> we probably would have had to fold, but because we, we don't have that pressure, we're, you know, we're able to ride the storm and, and uh, you know, get through this. So just a couple of quick lessons, you know, along the way, but we, um, so, uh, so yeah, Neo360, okay? I'm going to hit on, because I think that's a good point, and because oftentimes you're always... Too often, and sometimes it makes sense, but a lot of start saying, hey, I'm going to take in as much money or get as big investment dollars as I can without ever, ever thinking through what are the kind of the handcuffs that come along with that. And there are a few, and you hit on one. Another one that I see all the time is, hey, if we go in and get a huge evaluation, loss of money, it's hard to do another round of that. So you have to keep growing the business bigger and bigger and bigger each time. Yeah. So if I go in and I get my evaluation, my company's worth $100 million, well, I don't want to have a down round where you now take a lower valuation because investors don't like that. They want to see their company be more valuable. So now you have to make it worth two million or two hundred million, and five hundred million, and then a billion. And if you're not ready to scale, or you don't have the plan to scale, or you're still working things out, you can have a whole bunch of money, and yet it can be harmful to the company because you took so money, so much money in earlier. Absolutely, yeah. And 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 by the way, we could have taken money early uh, more. And we decided not to. It was, you know, in hindsight, a good decision, especially that we didn't have product market fit. And, you know, it was 
it was uh, still some time till we did. So, um, yeah, so Neo360, you know, um, your audience can go to uh, 360neo.com and check out what we're doing there. Um, mm. And then uh, sometime last year, you know, I started thinking, you know, I wanted to be involved in, in something a little more, a uh, little more, you know, meaning behind it. And so I was looking at a couple of different opportunities. Uh, wasn't looking to create a new company myself since I'm, you know, still uh, active with uh, Neo360. But I did have some time that we're sort of licensing the model now and, you know, gave me a little bit of time to, to work on it. So I work on something else, put some time into something else. So a friend of mine had uh, created a company out of Stanford University. Mm. They were doing breath diagnostics for cancer. And I, I went and visited them last year in, in uh, San Francisco and loved what they were doing. And so we started talking. This was, you know, late last year. They, you know, wanted me to come on board as a strategy advisor. So I took took on that role. And from the point that that happened uh, to now, our the, our whole world turned upside down, as everybody listening knows. <laughs> so uh, the team has been working for the last two years on breath-based diagnostics. They uh, identified biomarkers in breath that could determine different cancers, and they also further future studies are going to be done with neurological diseases and, and uh, also infectious diseases. So when this happened, uh, one of the co-founders is one of the major hospitalists at uh, Stanford. He was on the front lines of, the, of this whole COVID-19. And one of the major problems he recognized was that patients would come in and just based on oxygen levels and x-rays, it was still hard to determine how far or how much lung damage the patient had and therefore mm. they didn't know whether to keep them or let them go and there's a lot of mistakes were made not necessarily by our team but around the world because mm. doctors just didn't have that that right you know enough information to know how severe like for example if you have a 23 year old who seems like they're very sick and you have a 73 year old who seems like they're okay but they have the same oxygen levels Mm. And the same x-rays look the same. What do you do, right? Is it the 23-year-old? Who, I have one, I have one um, you know, breathing machine left. Who do I put on? So these decisions were, were you know, uh, these tough decisions were, were made, you know, day in and day out at these hospitals. So the team went back and remembered some, some of the research they were doing. And there was an amino acid biomarker that... Uh, that they, they looked into and they quickly realized that this biomarker in breath could help determine how much cell damage the lungs had. So uh, just, just so you and the audience understand, what happens with COVID-19 is you're, you're, it attacks the lungs and the cells die. And if your immune system is not strong and your, your uh, stem cell system you know, is not reproducing, then if the cells die and it gets filled with collagen. So collagen, think of it as like cement. So now you've got these holes in your lungs and you've got little cement pieces. The more cement is in your lungs, the less you can breathe and eventually you get pneumonia and you, you die. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a major, major breakthrough to be able to figure out which one of those cells, um, you know, how much damage there is to the lungs. Therefore, you know who to keep, who to let go and, how long to keep them, right? Because 
that's another problem. The hospital keeps somebody on a, on a breathing machine for 10 days when they only needed to be there for five, but they didn't yeah. know, right? They're just basing it on just oxygen. So oxygen level. So, uh, so they had this major breakthrough. And so we've been all in on uh, helping the company uh, get this out there and get these studies uh, fast tracked and, and get this product to the market in the hands of, of the physicians as soon as possible. So we just launched a crowdfunding equity crowdfunding campaign on fundable.com. Mm. Uh, the company is called Diagnose Early. So you can just Google fundable and you'll, we're in, in one of the columns that's um, new and noteworthy, but you can also just Google um, Diagnose Early. We're going to have that on the website as well, diagnoseearly.com. And uh, any accredited, anybody can see the information. Uh, if you're an accredited investor, you can actually uh, request to get all the investment docs and the further investment information. And we're, we're giving the opportunity for, you know, outside uh, investors to, to come in and take part in this uh, groundbreaking technology that our team produced so we can get this to market as soon as possible. All right. And I definitely will share that with our audience or the angel investors or venture capital or others that are looking to partner up. Certainly a, a needed field as well as uh, something that uh, sounds pretty exciting and, and promising. So that's awesome. So we are, we're hitting up towards the end of the episode and I, every episode, and I say the same thing basically every episode. So I guess I could just stop saying it. I always, there's always so many more things than I want to, that we want, I want to talk about and dive into in details that we never get. Um, one or two questions, one before I always have my last two questions, but I'll ask you one more question before my last two questions. And so we have every, Almost a, the by def, you know, the, the 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 definition of a serial entrepreneur, right? You went from eBay drop sh- or you know drop stores to franchising to bundling loans to helping book proposals to you know mobile phone and or, and doing the all that industry to mo- or mobile phone accessories. You're doing you know touch screen and all of that now with the NFL and now you're into COVID. So it seems like you know one is you're all over, which isn't a bad thing. It sounds very successful but you're kind of weaving in and out of all these different industries and that. So how do you, how do you pick or decide where your next venture is or what, or, you know, what you're going to do and where you're going to put your passion and time and effort on? Yeah, it's a great question. So yeah, I, I, I like to answer that question first by saying, you know, it, it does seem like, like it's all over, but yeah, I, I just want everyone to understand these ventures were all super focused, right? Like two to three years, sometimes more, uh, where that's all I'm focused on. So it, although the industries are multiple different industries, I get, uh, you know, satisfaction on going into, uh, going into an industry that I don't have any preconceived, uh, idea about, or maybe learn anything prior to what I want to learn or how I want to dive in. And what I do is I like to take things that I've learned from one industry and bring them to another. Right. So, I've done this multiple times. Um, we didn't talk about some patents that I own, but you know, I've taken the idea of aggregating loans and put that into a voice uh, technology patent that I'm part of. And I've done, you know, I've taken the concepts that I've learned and built, and I and I've brought them into different industries. So, for example, with uh, medical, like what I did now, I have the crowdfunding background. The team I'm, I joined with strategy. They had no idea about crowdfunding. They had no idea what it was. They didn't even see it as an opportunity. Then I came in and helped them realize that 
not only is it an opportunity, but we, in this time of quarantine, when you can't get out and meet investors the way you could, mm -hmm. it's actually one of the best ways to do it, right? Because you can get yeah. in front of as you know, many people as possible without having to go face to face and and you know you could you could uh, still navigate the, the the you know capital raising. So I it's just my personality is I like to dive into something new and fresh and learn as if I'm a new you know learning from from the ground up and then to, to add my you know sort of knowledge and twist to what I'm doing and try to bring something innovative to whatever it is that I'm working on. No, that's that's a good good point. And so take the the skill sets and knowledge that you have and applying it to new and interesting something, an industry that you find or a project you find to be exciting or fun or new, and then uh, and apply that as, as a great way to, to choose or choose where the next path takes you. So exactly, yeah. Now we're hitting to the end of the podcast. I am going to ask my last or two questions I always ask at the end of the podcast. So one is, what is the worst business is, is or sorry, business decision you've made? Uh, so yeah, I made a lot of bad business decisions. Um, I think the worst one, uh, is, is taking on the wrong partners, mm. uh, for the wrong reason. You know, sometimes I think before you take on a partner, you really need to get to know them, know their skill set, and know what they're willing to put in. Because a lot of times you and if you don't do that you end up putting in uh, a different level of work effort skill you give up more you know than than uh, a partner so it's always good to make sure that's really clear from the beginning and you know i've been lucky and, and, and did that successfully a few times and a few times i i didn't so um you know it's it, it's hard to have a, a team when it's when it's not all in by everyone right because yep. you know you so I, I would say that's that's definitely you know has to be up there with the decisions okay so that's the one question worst decision is bringing on bad partners and i always flip the question and say now if you're getting someone that was a serial entrepreneur or wants to be a serial entrepreneur and hasn't quite broken into the industry or anything yet what would be the one piece of advice that you'd give someone that was wanting to start to start on their entrepreneur journey or or jump into a new startup stop making excuses so we live in a time now where, you know, let, let me just give you the, uh, you know, juxtapose these two times. If you wanted to start a business in 1980, hmm. right, and you went ahead, you know, 40 years ago, and you said, I want to start a business. Do you know how much harder it would have been to start a business in 1980? How little marketing you had, maybe the yellow pages, if you were lucky, you know, some local newspapers to get into, to, to meet the right people, to get educated, to, I mean, mm. it was so challenging. This time in history is better than any other time in history to, to want to be an entrepreneur. You can, you can have, you can learn about any industry you want to learn about. You, I mean, even if you, you talk about schooling, you know, people say, oh, I don't have the right schooling. I mean, you don't need schooling. You could go online and get, download courses from MIT for free you could do the same thing with other other universities and and other than that you could just research and study any business you really would want to study i mean it's not 
Mm. You know, you could start websites really cheaply. Wix.com, $15 a month will give you a really professional website template. You can plug it in with information. You could find products or you come up with a product. You, could, you have social media channels that you can reach out to family and friends to buy your products. I mean, the list goes on. So my advice is don't stop making excuses. Take the first step. Take one step at a time, right? Yep. If you look at how much time we spend on our mobile devices, just going on Instagram and this and that and like wasting time, everybody can go on there and figure out how much time you're actually wasting. I don't know how many people really do it. Um, but if you want, you can do that. Take 20 minutes a day, save 20 minutes of that time a day, right? And use that 20 minutes towards your goal of starting a business, doing 20 minutes of research a day. That'll get you in a month. You'll have more information and more, you know, uh, ways to get started than, than ever. So there's no excuse. I, I think just stop making excuses and just get started. Just do it. I like that. I think that that's probably what keeps people a lot of times that otherwise I don't have the education. I don't have the money. I don't have the experience. I don't have the background. I don't have the connection. Whatever your excuse is, just start doing it. Even if it's, you don't know what you're doing, figure it out along the way, but get started, I think is great advice. Well, thank you for coming on. I, it has been a, a, a really fun discussion. It uh, hit on a whole bunch of different topics. Always wish I had more time, but uh, that will wrap it up for today for this episode. So thank you again for coming on. Um, for those of you that are um, needing or wanting to get your journey started, happy to help uh, in any way I can. I do patents and trademarks with Miller IP Law. If you want to reach out to us there, we're happy to help there. If we can connect you up with anybody, we're, we're here to help and connect in any way we can. We're really just here for the, uh, for the startups and small businesses that are wanting to get going. Thank you again, David. Um, last thing, Thank if you, people want to get, you mentioned at the beginning, I'll give you your, your time and then we'll wrap it up. People want to get in contact with you. They want to reach out to one of your projects or they want to support your, uh, your company with doing the COVID diagnosis or that. What's the best way to reach out to you? So, so uh, David Borish, that's B-O-R-I-S-H, at David Borish on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. Um, I have a, uh, my website is davidborish.com. So it's, it's really easy to reach out to me. I'm always willing to help with questions. Uh, if anyone has any questions or advice they need, um, diagnoseearly.com uh, is, is our website and we're on fundable as I mentioned earlier and on um, davidborsch.com you'll find all links to the other ventures and everything uh, mentioned before awesome well we will I will certainly uh, make sure to direct everybody there and hope everybody comes out and supports you with all the different things you're doing thank you again for coming on it was great to hear your journey and it was a pleasure to have you on thanks Devin appreciate it